But, you know, the fact of the matter is, at the end of the day, like, and even with, you know, these spacecraft that we build or these telescopes that we build, like, we're not putting all of that money onto a rocket and launching it into space, right? right, <laughs> like, right. That money gets spent to pay people here to, you know, purchase things um, from a lot of small businesses. Sometimes NASA mm-hmm. tries as much as possible to contract with small businesses. It pays people salaries that then go back into the economy and all of those things. Right. So, you know, it's um, it, it seems sometimes like you know, people are just, you know, we're just sending this money into space. But that's yeah. not really what happens. Right. Um, and I think it's important for people to remember that. This episode of the Smart Athlete Podcast is brought to you by Solpre, skincare for athletes. Whether you're in the gym, on the mats, on the road, or in the pool, we protect your skin so you're more comfortable in your own body. To learn more, go to solpre.com. Welcome to the Smart Athlete Podcast. I'm your host, Jesse Funk. My guest today is an assistant professor at John Hopkins University. Uh, she has her PhD in planetary science, which is awesome because I haven't talked to anybody yet in this field. So we're hopefully going to get in some really cool stuff. Um, she raced for the triathlon club at the University of Arizona. Welcome to the show, Sarah Hurst. Hey, how's it going? Going pretty well. Um, as I said before, we got going. Thanks for taking the time to kind of hang out with me today. First, I have to ask, um, so if you're not, if you're just listening on iTunes or on SoundCloud and you're not looking on YouTube, you're missing out (laughs) on Sarah's background. We've got stars. I I assume they're probably proper constellations or what's, what's going on? Oh gosh. Yes. It's um, a little nerdy. There's actually the headboard for my bed. Okay. (laughs) Um, And it is the sky above Pasadena, California, the night that I found a methane storm on Saturn's moon Titan. Okay. So it's like even, it's probably even nerdier than you could possibly have imagined when you asked me that question. No, that's all. No, that's awesome. Like, I, I, <laughs> you know, I do stuff. So, like, um, so I have two different businesses, and one of the businesses I create original card games and board games. And I have a math game for kids that's space themed. Mm-hmm. And in that, uh, there's like, it's like, there's like a captain's log, like from mm-hmm. Star Trek. And the, the date for the captain's log is my 500th birthday. Okay. <laughs> so that's I, amazing. yeah, so I, I'm with you. Like I'll do, <laughs> I like all kinds of weird, weird, like nerdy stuff like that. T- totally cool. Um, so I have to ask, right. how do you figure that out? Do you do you have like is there like a telescope taking pictures every day that you can reference or? Yeah, so this was why I was still an undergrad, and we were using um, this pretty small teaching telescope that is on the roof of one of the buildings um, at Caltech where I did my undergrad, and um, so Titan, which is the largest moon of Saturn. Um, has a hydrologic cycle, kind of like Earth, um, except for the liquid is methane, not water. Um, but it occasionally has these big storms that make, you know, these big puffy, bright clouds like we um, see on Earth. And so what we were doing was we were looking um, at Titan night after night after night in um, these really narrow um, filters of light. So instead of looking at the whole spectrum, um, we were just looking in these like really specific bands. And in one of those bands, you just see methane. 
Mm-hmm. And then another one you don't. And so we weren't even um, resolving Titan with this um, telescope. Titan was just like this little dot. <laughs> okay. And um, But we would look to see how bright it was in each of those little filters. And we mm-hmm. would compare it every night. And if there was a big storm, then in that filter, Titan would be much brighter than it normally is. And so then if that happened... <laughs> at least at the time, uh, my advisor, uh, who's Mike Brown, who's more famous for killing Pluto um, than for any of his work on Titan, which is okay. another story, right. um, would just call somebody who was on a big telescope. Um, most often he would call someone on the Keck telescope, which is in Hawaii, and he would ask them if they could use some of their precious observing time to just take a picture of Titan real fast so that we could see if there actually was a storm or mm-hmm. not and where it was. And, um, so we did that for, um, a year. And then after that, um, because it turns out that the idea actually worked really well, um, then it kind of just became this like much more advanced thing. And we had like proper ways to actually get telescope images if we found a storm. Mm -hmm. Um, it wasn't, um, the storms on Titan are pretty infrequent, and so you wouldn't want to just try to look with a big telescope all the time. You want to try to look with a little itty-bitty telescope so that you're not wasting the big telescope's time. Um, sometimes we will go Earth years, <clears throat> multiple Earth years, without <clears throat> seeing a storm on Titan. <laughs> and so okay. um, you definitely don't want to be looking every night with like the world's most expensive telescopes, because that would make everybody mad pretty fast. Yeah. yeah. So that's the story with that. <laughs> And then, so you mapped it out, you mapped out, I I would assume that you're mapping out, like, major constellations here behind you from that night. Yeah, so it's basically the sky. I actually, I'm trying to think what constellations there are here now that I'm looking. Um, Because it it would be... This is Andromeda right here. Okay. Um, There's Saturn right there. I don't know if you can see where I'm pointing. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't remember what the other constellations are. And some of the... uh, the stars have fallen off over the years, so <laughs> it might be time to uh, to to uh, redo this. But this is um, the wood is beetle kill pine from Colorado. Okay. And um, I think because it's kind of well, the lighting here's not great right now, but it's kind of bluish, and I kind of felt like it looked like the night sky, and so okay. that. Was... So then I was like, well, I'm just gonna put stars on it, and then I was like, well, if I put stars, they have to have some kind of meaning because. You know, I do this for a living. Right. I was trying to figure out, like, what would be meaningful. Anyway, that's how that happened. <laughs> right. Because if you put up, if you just put up stars in, like, a random pattern, it would eventually have, like, driven you crazy. And you'd be like, these need to be arranged in some sort of fashion. Right. Right. I'm, yes, that's an absolutely true statement. <laughs> so I felt like if I was going to do this, I had to do it right. Although I will say there's lots of other stars in my house because there's lots of space stuff all over in my house. And... None of the other stars are in any kind of particular arrangement. They're just, like, stars. Yeah. So, yeah. I don't know. <laughs> that's okay. That's, like I said, that's, I, um, this is its own story, but for that, that game brand, I kind of started that brand. It pivoted into games over time, but I kind of started it with the idea of, like, catering to, like, nerdy people. And I think about nerds or geeks in the sense of like you're just like really into something whatever it is whether it's like in your case like planet planets and Mm -hmm. and space or you're into like cars or you're into 
uh, forestry, whatever, you know, whatever yeah. it is. Like, I think I always find, and that's kind of the people I'm looking to talk to on this show, <laughs> big, smart athletes. Um, but I always feel like those kind of people that are really like gone way down the rabbit hole, um, kind of have the most interesting things to say because they've spent the most time thinking deeply about something instead of just like sitting on the couch watching Netflix all day, which is, you know, a good pastime, but mm-hmm. we have to spend our time doing more than just that. Yeah. So, um, the one thing I want to ask you, uh, a, a little bit facetious, but I mean, why, why should we study space at all? I mean, we have <laughs> lots of like terrestrial pl- problems, you know, climate change and political issues and I'm hungry and I want something to eat. Like there's all of these things that we could deal with right here. Why, why do we even bother looking at Titan? Yeah. So I get asked this question a lot. Okay. <laughs> um, I think there's, you know, there's a few different reasons. I think, um, you know, from kind of a, a practical consideration. So one of the things that you just um, ticked off in your list of things that are, you know, important um, are things like climate change. So, um, you know, I think one of the one of the things that planetary scientists are really trying to do is understand how planets work. And although we study specific places and specific processes, so, you know, I study a lot about Titan's atmosphere, um, it's not just to understand that, like, one specific place, but it's to get a better understanding of how planets work in general. Mm-hmm. And to do that, we develop a lot of different tools, or we bother to, we borrow tools from the Earth science community. Um, in general, they tend to be more advanced um, in a lot of things, just because we've been studying Earth longer than we've been studying um, things like Titan. Right. Uh, and so... In doing that, um, we get a chance to test those tools. So an example are some of the models that are used to study Earth's atmosphere and try to predict um, what will happen over time um, Mm -hmm. as the CO2 levels are increasing. Um, And we can use those same tools to study the atmosphere of Venus or the atmosphere of Titan. And in doing that, um, you know, it gives us, it's like another experiment that you're running and it lets us test those models in a different um, set of circumstances. And that lets us really figure out if those models are working the way that we think they are. Um, if we really understand the physical processes that are in the models, um, which is important. And so, um, you know, just kind of from that aspect, everything that we're doing to try to learn how um, other planets work, even if they're very different from Earth, um, in the end helps us understand Earth better because Earth is a planet, as it turns out, which is kind of a longstanding joke with planetary scientists because most of us don't study Earth, even though Earth is a planet. So that's, you know, that's kind of practical. I think the other two things are a little bit harder to just like point to like a really specific like day-to-day life benefit. So I think the one thing is I think it's important as humans for us to, um, you know, study things that don't necessarily have a practical application. So to try to answer these questions about, you know, how did we get here and are we alone in the universe and to allow the curiosity that, you know, seems to be very natural to humans mm-hmm. um, to let us, you know, try to answer these questions that we come up with. And I think, you know, that doesn't just apply to space science, but you can think about, you know, art and music and all of these things that, um, you know, may not necessarily have a super important day-to-day life 
um, mm. practical implication, but I think, um, you know, are, are very, um, you know, kind of deeply ingrained in us and are one of the things that, that makes being human, like a good thing to do. <laughs> um, right. And then I think the final thing is that, um, and, and this definitely applies not just to us, but one of the things that we do in planetary science, especially with the, the spacecraft that we send, um, the telescopes that we build, is, um, you know, we're always kind of pushing the, the envelope of science and technology because we're trying to go to environments where we have never sent a spacecraft or we're trying to do a type of measurement that's never been done before. And I think anytime you do that kind of thing, anytime you're pushing the envelope, um, you are provided with an opportunity to really make a big discovery. And it mm -hmm. may just be a software algorithm that's going to turn out to be really important, or it may be, you know, a new type of rubber that um, is going to be really useful. And so there's an entire website of NASA spinoff technology. Mm -hmm. And if you go and read it, it's really interesting because there's all of these things that you would never know that you're using in your day-to-day -day life that were developed because of space exploration. And so um, one of my more recent favorite examples that I learned about was that um, when they were developing uh, tires for the like lunar, like the moon buggies that they mm -hmm. sent with the Apollo astronauts, um, it was really challenging because it was a very different environment um, to drive around on the moon. The temperatures are much colder, all of these things. And so in developing the tires that they ended up uh, sending to the moon for Apollo, they actually figured out a better way to make tires for mm -hmm. just everyday use in cars on Earth. And right. so a lot of that technology that was developed for this like one-off use or like a couple times use on the moon ended up being something that found its way into our like everyday lives. And most people don't know that. And for some of these things, maybe that wasn't really necessary. Like we had tires, they were working okay. Um, but because we were, you know, really pushing the envelope to try to do this in a different environment, we learned something that had an uh, impact, um, you know, that found its way into everyday life. And the thing that's hard about that is that when Congress wants to cut NASA's funding or when people ask, you know, how does your, what you do matter? Like, why should you keep doing it? You can't point to those things because we don't do, you know, that a lot of that spinoff spin stuff doesn't happen on purpose. Like, you don't think, okay, well, if we develop this new tire for the moon, right. it's going to be really good for Earth. Like, that's something that, that people realize later or somewhere during the process. And so, um, you know, you can't, promise that those kinds of things are going to happen or at least in my mind you can't promise specific things will happen I think right. every time we've done something like that there have been um you know major uh you know developments that have found their way back into everyday life but um that's a hard thing to promise right. and so that makes it a little harder to like use that as a justification for what we do <laughs> Yeah, and you know, I will be upfront with my partisanship. You know, if you listen to other episodes, often I get along with, uh, get along, but like I identify more easily with um, people, I'll say academics that are working on like functional or practical problems because I'm an entrepreneur. So, like, I can't bring research in and then sell it. Like, I have to make practical solutions to real world problems. So, like, on a personal level, it's much easier. For me to identify with like people that are working on things that immediately apply mm -hmm. 
But I also understand, and I say this in other interviews as well, that like there are a lot of things that come out of like, let's just figure things out. And then somehow this kind of collective knowledge, you know, eventually spits out these nice little pieces that we didn't wouldn't know otherwise if we hadn't spent the time to kind of hone in on that almost like human nature of curiosity and exploration and all of those things. You also made me think about, I can't remember who to attribute this to, but um, somebody talked about with new technologies. So we're kind of past the point now, but say like when renewables weren't really uh, like renewable energy wasn't really going yet. We're getting close to it being or have already passed in some cases, like solar being more cost effective than oil. Um, Somebody mentioned that often it's easier for, say, government to just throw money at a problem initially until enough information is there for private enterprise to take over and kind of go from that point. Because it wouldn't have been profitable for private enterprise to just throw money at it in the hopes that something appears. So sometimes I kind of think of that in the same realm where it's like, you know, NASA or or other government projects are working on these things. And then, you know, something nice comes out of it and then private enterprise takes over, refines it even further and makes it practical for our everyday lives. So I will, even though I, I identify more easily with people working on strictly functional problems, I will certainly always defend um, your right and ability to to look at things like Titan and try to figure out what's going on there because you know that kind of it's part of I don't know it's part of what it is to be human I guess is to indulge in that that curiosity of discovery. Yeah, yeah. Well, and I think I mean I think one thing too that people also kind of forget because I feel like a lot of times when people ask the question, they're trying to justify spending money on what we do. Right. 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 Especially, you know, and I'm very cognizant of the fact that like a lot of my money comes from the U.S. taxpayers because Mm -hmm. I get a lot of my research funding from NASA. Um, But, you know, the fact of the matter is at the end of the day, like and even with, you know, these spacecraft that we build or these telescopes that we build, like we're not putting all of that money onto a rocket and launching it into space. right? Right. Right. That money gets spent to pay people here to, you know, purchase things um, from a lot of small businesses. Sometimes NASA Mm -hmm. tries as much as possible to contract with small businesses. It pays people salaries that then go back into the economy and all of those things. So, you know, it's, um, it, it seems sometimes like, you know, people are just, you know, we're just sending this money into space, but that's not really what happens. Um, And I think it's important for people to remember that because, um, you know, we do, we are very much cognizant of the fact that, you know, it is people's hard-earned um, money that, that fund the work that we do. And, um, you know, I think for the most part, although there's occasionally high-profile cases where um, people have, you know, been up to no good, um, you know, the scientists that I know that, that get, you know, all their money from, from the U.S. government all work very, very hard to make sure that every single, you know, dime um, is used in the most efficient way possible, um, in part because we have to work so hard to get that money in the first place, yeah. <laughs> which is maybe a different issue. <laughs> I mean, you just take, like, courses in grant writing and trying to, like... Yeah, they don't really teach you how to do that. You just kind of, like, learn like by uh, failing a lot. Okay. <laughs> Yeah. I really like the image of just like 
loading up like gold bars onto a rocket and then launching them into space and then hoping for the best. <laughs> I mean, sometimes I feel like when you talk to people, because, you know, okay, so for example, um, the mission that I have used a lot of data from that was in the Saturn system for, for 14 years cost about four and a half billion dollars. Um, that sounds like a lot to a normal human. Um, right, because for one person to have... Money. Right. Yes. <laughs> um, you know, in the in the budget of the of the federal government, that's effectively no dollars. Right. Um, and if you actually average it over the lifetime of the mission, that was like five dollars per U.S. taxpayer or something. Yeah. So all those beautiful images of Saturn and everything else, you know, five dollars. Four and a half billion dollars still sounds like a lot, you know. Yeah. But every single one of those dollars was spent on Earth. Um, you know, paying engineers and scientists and helping pay the salary of administrative staff and custodial staff and, um, you know, buying parts from lots of different um, contractors and all of those things. And so you get this vision in your head of like, oh, we built this spacecraft and we sent it off of Earth. And I think everyone thinks that the money is just like jammed God. inside of it. Yeah. Somehow. <laughs> it's like launching off and there's dollar bills like fl flying yeah, off of it as it, as it exits the atmosphere. I don't know. No, I just, and the, the visualization was just fun. But yeah, I mean, obviously you make a very good point that it is, it is not really going anywhere. It is resources that are now gone into space, but the money itself is still, you know, here. Yeah. I, it kind of gets to the point of like, I talk about this every once in a while, but like, pe I don't think people really understand what money is. <laughs> like money is yeah. a store, of, like money is a store of value. It's only, yeah. it's, it, it really is imaginary in every sense. It's, it's a system that we've made up to keep score of the value that we exchange with one another. Mm -hmm. So like, it, it, yeah, it didn't get, just get launched into space. Like it got exchanged. It got exchanged for all these people to make this thing get launched into space. But we—that's a whole, like I said—that's a whole other rabbit hole. We'll try not to get into today. Um, so I, I think I read that. So you're studying Titan specifically right now. Is that correct? Okay, and you you do mostly like what's happening in the atmosphere of Titan. Yeah, so, I mean, my research group studies a lot of different places. Um, we're doing a lot of work on extrasolar planets right now, but um, okay. Titan's kind of the uh, first thing that I uh, loved, I think. Um, you know, the story with the clouds. You know, I was, I think I was 19 when, when I started working on that project. Okay. Um, so, I've been studying Titan for almost 20 years. Um, and... For the most part, I'm interested in the chemistry that's happening in its atmosphere, um, which is true, actually, of most of the places that, that I study and that my research group studies. That's mm -hmm. what we're particularly interested in. Um, more recently, we've also been uh, become interested in trying to understand the um, interactions between the atmosphere and the surface. Um, and the main reason for that is that there's chemistry going on in the atmosphere that makes a lot of complicated um, organic molecules and those molecules um, end up on the surface eventually as solids 
Um, and then, you know, there they're carved by all kinds of surface processes. So there's um, rivers and streams of, of methane and some other um, molecules like ethane. Um, there's big dune fields that where the, the sand particles are probably made um, of organics that were made in the atmosphere. And so um, as time has gone on, we've also gotten interested in trying to understand more about how the um, how the atmosphere and surface interact. Sorry if I seem distracted. My computer has suddenly decided that it's very unhappy, and so I'm trying to close um, <laughs> any, like, rogue programs because my... Uh, Processor's gotten unhappy. Yes. Apparently, okay. apparently PowerPoint has made it, like, very, very angry, but I think I just managed to force quit PowerPoint, so hopefully... PowerPoint's logging all the resources. Well, um, the problem is this computer is five and a half years old, and it... Um, has been telling me the battery needs to be replaced for two years, um, which is probably fine. <laughs> and uh, so, like I said, you know, trying to make sure that we uh, we squeeze every uh, everything we can out of every uh, dollar. Right, it's not not new upgrades every year. Is <laughs> no, certainly not making use of old technology. But that's, I mean, I do the same thing. Um, I've closed literally every program except for Skype. So hopefully now it will not be so bad. Let's see if that helps. <laughs> I mean, it's fine on my end, so we'll see. Um, yeah. So the one thing I was wondering about is, and this is something I'm kind of interested in, in in space things in general, is just like you're talking about studying organic compounds in the atmosphere that's formed in the atmosphere of Titan that descend to the surface. <clears throat> I'm assuming we're not taking physical samples that are coming back here to Earth for you to analyze. So like, how do you determine what those things are or, or kind of sort through, you know, what the composition of, I guess, chemicals and compounds that you're looking at actually is? Yeah. So we use um, a lot of different tools as <laughs> planetary scientists. So um, obviously I mentioned telescopes before. And mm -hmm. so um, one of the ways that you can study the composition of an atmosphere is with a telescope. Um, and the reason for that is because um, every molecule has, like, a different fingerprint of the way that it interacts with light. Okay. And so if we look at the way um, sunlight, you know, we know what the sun looks like. Right. Um, and so if sunlight is filtered through Titan's atmosphere and we see it on the other side, um, we can then see that imprint of Titan's atmosphere and look for those different fingerprints that we know. So that's one thing that we can do. Um, and that's how, right now, that's how we um, are learning about the atmospheres of planets around other stars, so extrasolar planets, is okay. by looking at this imprint. Um, we also use uh, spacecraft um, in the solar system only so far. <laughs> Maybe someday we'll send a spacecraft to a planet around another star, but right now we're only in the solar system. Um, when we send spacecraft, they do lots of different things. So they can do the same thing that I just mentioned. They'll have instruments on the spacecraft that can study the way that light interacts with an atmosphere or a surface and help us mm -hmm. figure out what it's made out of. Um, but we can also send instruments that will actually directly sample the atmosphere and measure the composition and send that data back to us. And we've done that for Titan um, with two different spacecraft. So the Cassini-Huygens mission was um, in orbit around Saturn for about 13 years. 13 mm -hmm. years? Yeah, that maths. Um, and so Cassini was an orbiter, Huygens was a probe, 
Um, the Huygens probe descended through Titan's atmosphere, taking samples on the way down. Mm -hmm. um, and so it directly measured the composition of the atmosphere and sent okay. that data back. And then the Cassini orbiter also had an instrument that could ingest Titan's atmosphere. And so um, even though Cassini was an orbit around Saturn, not Titan, um, it would occasionally fly um, by Titan, and often when it did that, it would get close enough that it would fly through the atmosphere mm -hmm. um, and take samples and measure the composition. So um, we got information that way. And then, so, you know, those are our kind of two um, observational tools where we can, um, you know, get actual data from the places. But then the other two things that we use to study um, planets in general and, and Titan's atmosphere specifically um, one tool that's really helpful for us are computer models, which I had mm -hmm. mentioned before. Um, and so one of the things that we use to understand the chemistry um, in Titan's atmosphere are these sophisticated computer models that have like, you know, every possible chemical reaction you could think of and all of the okay. different things that we think are in um, Titan's atmosphere. And so we can try to understand um, what kinds of, you know, what kinds of chemistry is happening there. Um, and uh, learn from things that way. And then the other tool that we have um, in our toolbox, which is something that I use a lot, um, are laboratory experiments. And so one of the things that we can, um, we can do is, you know, we can use that information that we have from the place that we um, have some data. So either from the telescopes or from, in the case of Titan, from Cassini-Huygens, um, and then we can try to do laboratory experiments to understand the chemistry. So in my lab at Hopkins, one of the things that we do is we will take those gases um, that we know, you know exactly how much there is because we measured it with Cassini. Right. Um, and so Titan's atmosphere has methane, like I mentioned before. The other main gas in Titan's atmosphere is nitrogen, um, just like Earth. And so we'll put methane and nitrogen into a vacuum chamber. Um, and we expose those gases to some type of energy. Um, sometimes we'll use light to kind of mimic the sun. Mm -hmm. um, sometimes we use an energetic plasma to mimic some other processes that happen in atmospheres. Um, but in either case, they break up some of that methane and some of that nitrogen mm -hmm. and start the kinds of chemical reactions that also happen in um, the atmosphere of Titan or the atmosphere of Venus or wherever. Mm -hmm. um, and then we can look at the new gases that are made and figure out what they are. Um, sometimes these um, experiments um, will result in the creation of, of solid particles, um, like I mentioned for Titan that we have created there. And so then we can take that material um, that gets made in the experiment and we can um, study its composition um, we actually use it for a lot of other things now. So um, having gotten interested in trying to understand these surface processes, um, I just had a graduate student, um, Shinting Yu, who finished her PhD um, earlier this year, um, who got really interested in trying to understand um, the mechanical properties of this material. So mm -hmm. like, how hard is it? How easily does it fracture? Mm -hmm. uh, is it brittle? Is it squishy? Um, and then also try to understand the inner particle forces. So like, you know, um, is this stuff like, will this stuff get statically charged really easy and then stick, um, to other particles? Um, is it just kind of sticky on its own and will stick to, to, to itself and other things? And so, um, we can't do that with the materials on Titan yet because we've never sent a mission there that had the ability to do those types of measurements, mm -hmm. but we use this analog material in the lab to try to, 
um, at least get an idea of what those properties might be like. Mm-hmm. And then people who are trying to model um, how dunes form on the surface or um, whether or not the lakes and seas will have some of this, these organic particles on the surface or whether they'll have sunk to the bottom, like have some type of, of numbers to put into their models or the calculations mm. that they're doing. Um, because otherwise it just makes stuff up. <laughs> right. So even though laboratory analogs aren't going to be a perfect analog of the material um, until we actually, you know, have a chance to go and really understand those materials better, um, this is the next best thing that we can do. Right. It gives you something to, instead of just like taking a stab in the complete dark, it gives you something to work off of and then probably some kind of margin of error where you're like, okay, it almost behaves like we think it should. What if we adjust it by, you know, whatever figure is yeah. that kind of the idea yeah basically um i was thinking about you're talking about um i think you said you mentioned uh trying to study the atmospheres of like exoplanets mm-hmm. and so with cassini obviously we we got the the in the uh huygens probe physical data from collection on titan but the mm-hmm. other the exoplanets you know, we're not just launching satellites to every single celestial body. Right. <laughs> so um, you were mentioning using basically light passing through the atmosphere and then looking for that fingerprint. Mm-hmm. I was wondering if basically the the resolution or the sensitivity of the telescopes or receiving objects used affects, you know, the quality of the data. Because mm-hmm. I'm just thinking about like, you know, if the light comes through and like, say you're like i just have this is impossible but just go with me for my absurd absurd example Uh, say i have like my backyard telescope and i'm looking well clearly i'm not gonna be able to distinguish anything right you know but then and then you go to the complete other spectrum and say you could sit on earth and then look down to you actually use a telescope and look at the size of a molecule well then you have way more information so i was thinking I don't know where on that spectrum our instruments are, but, you know, I, I thought it would probably affect the data depending on how far along, how you know, how sophisticated are those inter- instruments are. Yeah. So, I mean, the, the size of the telescope um, is a big deal. And um, the, I mean, there's, so there's lots of different things go, that go into all of this, right? Because... Um, you know, the, the light that's coming from these stars and these planets that are far away, right. It's spreading out like, um, as a sphere around the, mm-hmm. um, body. And so the farther away you are, the sphere, the surface of the sphere has gotten bigger and bigger and bigger, right? So mm-hmm. there's, there's less and less light, um, right. it's actually making to you as the, making it to you as the observer, the farther away you are. So one of the things is, um, that really affects the, the data quality is simply, um, how close we are to that yeah. particular star or planet. Um, it matters what kind of star it is because that affects how much light there is. And mm. then the size of the telescope matters because that's our collecting area um, mm. for collecting that light. And so a tiny telescope can only collect a little bit of the light. A bigger telescope can um, collect a bigger um, amount. The other issue that we have, um, depending on what kind of light we want to look at, is that Earth's atmosphere also has a fingerprint. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and so when a telescope is sitting on the ground, um, all of the atmosphere gets in the way because it absorbs a lot of that light. And so 
um, it can be really challenging, basically, to look for any molecule that is in Earth's atmosphere. Mm -hmm. <laughs> because we already have that fingerprint on the light that's coming. Right. So this is one of the reasons why we build telescopes in space. Um, because then they're above Earth's atmosphere. Um, and so we don't have to worry about that fingerprint that um, Earth's atmosphere is putting on it. And so, but then that becomes challenging because it's much easier to big a big, build a big telescope on the ground than it is to build a big telescope in space. Right. Um, and so there's lots of different trade-offs. But um, right now, um, we have a couple of, of really great telescopes in space. We're getting ready to hopefully launch um, another one in about a year and a half called the James Webb Space Telescope, mm -hmm. um, which is an absolutely massive telescope that is going to... Um, really revolutionize all kinds of astronomy, but it will be very good for trying to measure the composition of um, planetary atmospheres. Um, but meanwhile, here on Earth, people are building new telescopes on the ground. They're building new instruments that have higher spectral resolution. So trying to look at all of those different wavelengths of light, um, mm -hmm. the, the better the resolution is there. Um, the more finely we can look at each different kind of photon, um, okay. the easier it is to um, correct for um, Earth's atmosphere, for example, the easier it is to identify other molecules. And so um, there's a lot of things, I think, technologically that weren't possible, you know, 10 years that are possible now. There's going to be a lot of things possible in 10 more years that aren't possible now. And... Um, I think it's really exciting time to, um, I guess, even just, you know, even be a space, space enthusiast because um, the field of extrasolar planets is very young. Mm -hmm. uh, the first one was discovered in the mid-90s. Um, we now know that there's more than 4,000 um, planets that we have identified um, outside of our solar system. Um, we also now know that at least in our galaxy, um, there are more planets than stars. Mm -hmm. um, so there's a lot of planets and people are coming up with really clever ways to study them. And so right now, the main way that we study extrasolar planets is using something called a transit method. And so what happens is we have systems where if this is the star and, um, you know, we have the observer, so you're the observer right now. Okay. <laughs> This is going to be very confusing for people who don't watch the video. So it's just, all, just all the audio. That's about to happen right now. I will try to explain it as well. Get on YouTube, watch the video. It'll make it easier. We have, we have the star, right? And so what happens is that the, the planet will go between the observer and the star. So the planet will go in front of the star. Okay. And when it does that, it gets in the way of just a little bit of the starlight. So right. a little bit of that star's light won't come to us anymore, or at least it won't come to us unfiltered. And so we look at how that planet affects the starlight. That helps us figure out how big the planet is. Mm -hmm. And if the planet has an atmosphere, its atmosphere can put that additional fingerprint of those gases onto the light that comes from the star. Right. And so we know what the star looks like because we looked at it without the planet. And then we know what the star plus the planet looks like. And so we can subtract out the signature of the star so that we only see the planet. Um, this is a technique that has um, been, been advancing a ton in the past few years. Mm -hmm. And 
people are doing all kinds of really clever things. They can measure um, day-night temperature variations on these planets using this mm -hmm. technique. Um, we're getting atmospheric composition measurements. People can tell if there's clouds um, in these atmospheres. And so that's one thing that is really exciting. And um, these planets are going to be things that will be really good um, targets for the James Webb Space Telescope. And so um, we're really excited about what these um, measurements are going to look like because um, they're going to give us a lot more insight into um, the composition of these planets and we'll really start to be able to at least think about how to search for life um, looking at the atmospheric composition um, mm -hmm. for these planets. Right now, um, we would be pretty hard-pressed to um, use any of the currently existing telescopes um, to, to convince ourselves that we have found the evidence of life if we found a place that looked interesting. Mm -hmm. uh, but that, that may change very soon, um, which I think is really exciting. Yeah, yeah. I, I've got, we'll have to back up a little bit and then continue forward. But so um, I apologize for not knowing, but the, with the James Webb Telescope, is it, is it going to sit like in synchronous orbit around Earth or where, how does that operate once it's in space? It is going to one of the Lagrange points, which is like a stable um, spot, like that's set up by the by the um, gravitational interactions of the Earth and the Sun. And I always forget okay. which Lagrange point it's going to be going to. Um, so it the main important thing about that story is that unlike Hubble, which is an orbit around Earth, mm -hmm. um, James Webb can't be serviced. So we sent astronauts to Hubble a bunch of times, mm -hmm. um, originally to fix an issue with the mirror, later to um, put new instruments and right. new gyroscopes and new all these things. And so this is one of the reasons why Hubble has lasted for so um, long. Right. Hubble uh, is 25 or 26 years old, mm -hmm. 26 years old, um, which is bananas because it was definitely it not supposed, supposed to last that, last that long. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> And, you know, one of the reasons for that and for all of the amazing science that it's been able to do is because of those servicing missions. And I think um, for sure the entire astronomy community is, is so, so grateful for those astronauts that risk their lives to, to service Hubble because um, if they hadn't, we probably wouldn't still have Hubble around during this kind of, um, you know, explosion of studying exoplanets. Mm -hmm. and. Hubble has been one of the, you know, really um, groundbreaking tools for trying to study um, these planets because of this issue with, Earth, with Earth's atmosphere getting in the way. And so, um, you know, hopefully, you know, I'm like looking around and I'm just realizing I have wood like directly behind me. <laughs> <laughs> one of the things that we're really hoping for is that, um, you know, Hubble will continue to function really well so that, um, when James Webb is launched and gets to its orbit and starts taking data, which will take it about six months, mm -hmm. um, that will actually have both of them operating at the same time. Mm -hmm. uh, there's some really cool synergistic science that we can do if we have both of them um, functional at the same time. And so I know um, I, I definitely speak for the entire astronomy community that we um, just keep hoping that, um, you know, Hubble just keeps chugging along the way it has been. Mm -hmm. um, because, of course, we can't service it now. Um, so the last Hubble servicing mission was 
about a decade ago um, because we need the space shuttle to service it, and we don't have a space shuttle anymore. Um, yeah. So it's just kind of up there on its own, uh, and fingers crossed <laughs> it keeps doing that um, for as long as humanly possible. But I yeah. guess as long as telescopically possible. I'm not really sure how to refer to Hubble, but... So, something like that. So, okay, uh, this, this takes me back to, like, way back in the beginning of our, our conversation, you mentioned um, your, I'll, I'll say, mentor uh, calling in a favor to Hawaii for the telescope. How how do you, how, how does it get decided, like, who gets to pull data from Hubble at any given time or, or from the new James Webb? Like, can you, like, could you, like, call up a friend at a different, you know, at, at NASA and be like, hey, remember how I won in that poker game and <laughs> I didn't make you pay? Like, you owe me a favor. Can you point the telescope? Like, how does that work? So it really, really, really depends on the telescope. Okay. So for things like Hubble, um, for the Keck telescopes in Hawaii, the, like, the really big telescopes, the ones that, um, you know, are very expensive to operate, that are... Um, and extremely high demand because they're so powerful. For those telescopes, um, there's something called a TAC, which is a telescope, uh, sorry, a time allocation committee. Mm-hmm. And so basically, you write a proposal <laughs> and you kind of make the science case for what the question is that you're trying to answer, mm-hmm. um, what the data are that you need to answer that question. And then, you know, you have to have sat down and done the math to figure out how much time you need on that telescope to answer your question. Now, maybe you need 10 minutes every night for a year because Mm -hmm. the measurement that you need is very short, but you need to do it over and over and over again because you're trying to look for, you know, changes, seasonal changes in an atmosphere or something like that. Um, Maybe you just need to sit and stare at the same part of space for the entire night. And so one of the challenges is trying to figure out how to maximize everybody getting done what they need to do when some people are just going to want the whole night for like three days in a row, um, where other people are going to want like 20 minutes, you know, once a week for a year. Um, there's also something, and this was what the, the program that I had mentioned, um, for Titan was doing, um, which is something called an interrupt. And so if you have a, if, if you're studying something that doesn't necessarily happen all the time, Mm-hmm. Um, which turns out to be, you know, a fair amount of astronomy is like, you know, a supernova or a storm on Titan or something like that, where you can't like necessarily predict exactly what it's going to happen. Right. You can basically put in proposals where you are like using a smaller telescope to monitor something. And then um, if you um, accomplish a certain, uh, you know, threshold or trigger or whatever, then you then you get time on the telescope. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the other thing that we have are things called um, director's discretionary time. And so the big telescope facilities, including Hubble, um, have the opportunity for you to, it's not quite as much as like calling, um, but to write a very short proposal that basically mm-hmm. says, you know, like, holy shit, this thing just happened. Like, <laughs> we need to go look at it right now. Yeah. Like, and if we don't look at it right now, we're never going to be able to look at it again, or yeah. we're going to miss this really important opportunity or whatever. And then, um, you know, the director has the discretion to look at that proposal and say, okay, you know what, like that is really important. And now we're going to shift around some of these other observations, um, 
so that we can make sure we get that. So it's um, it's definitely an interesting scheduling problem in astronomy because you have you know these things that happen very regularly that people mm -hmm. want to do. You have observations that don't necessarily matter when they get done as long as they get done, and then you have things that just like appear like effectively mm -hmm. out of thin air sometimes, and that people are going to want to study. Um, but one of the things that will happen is. Um, Hubble, not so much, because Hubble is definitely a special case. Um, but with a lot of the ground-based telescopes, if they're still operating on a model where, you know, a, a person is physically going there to observe, or sometimes we do something called remote observing now, where you are sitting in, in a facsimile of the control room, but you're not actually at the telescope, mm -hmm. um, and you have control over the telescope for the whole night or half the night or whatever, um, people will for sure like email or call um, if they know who's on the telescope that night and, you know, ask for a favor. Um, and my feeling is that it's a lot less kind of like the, the backroom deals that, that people might think and more mm -hmm. just, um, you know, we're all at some, you know, at some point just in our own different ways uh, engaged in the same collective endeavor. Right. And so, you know, I think, I think the vast majority of the time if people – can help each other they for sure will because like at some point it's going to be you on the other end of the phone mm -hmm. wanting to be like can you pretty please just go look at this one thing for us real fast um and so people try really hard to to work together on those kinds of things especially realizing that you know these these are all very precious resources all of these telescopes and um you know trying to maximize the science that gets done with them is is important to all of us mm -hmm. yeah I think it's it's almost like you just you mentioned backroom deals, which I kind of prompted you, but um, it, it's almost like just view it through the lens of like goodness of humanity rather than like the greedy side of humanity, and you'll view it correctly. Where it's like everybody's in this endeavor together, we're all trying to help each other. It's not like you you scratch my back, I'll scratch your back, <laughs> any kind of weird weird thing going on. Um, I did want to ask you about, I, I think it was your postdoc you spent at NASA. You spent time at NASA. I was, I was actually at the Jet Propulsion Laboratory, uh, between undergrad and grad school. <laughs> okay. Okay. Yeah. I'm yeah. trying to figure out where that got sandwiched in. You spent yeah. years there? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, so this is, again, mo most of these questions are layman's questions, so you just have to go with me, but, um, it, to, at least from a layman's standpoint, it seems like. NASA is like the place to be for studying anything space, like mm -hmm. the mecca of space. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, you, you spent time there. You're John Hop Johns Hopkins now, which is not bad. <laughs> <laughs> um, but did you did you want to go back to NASA? Is there is John Hopkins a, a better place in NASA? Do you feel like you're in the right place? Or is it like there there's like an aspirational place where any any kind of space nerd wants to be yeah so i guess that's i mean i think that's something that um i think that that's actually kind of a common question although maybe framed differently most of the time i get asked it but um you know when i tell people what i do they always assume i work for nasa um, right and so i think people don't realize that um I mean, this is true for, for all of science, but I think it's particularly true for, for space science. There's lots of different 
um, types of places where planetary scientists work. And so a lot of people are obviously employed at NASA centers. Um, those people, um, if they're scientists, tend to be working on um, NASA missions all the time, while, you know, whether that's things that are being developed or things that are currently in flight. Um, but for the most part, that's, you know, what those people are doing for most, if not all of their time. Um, there are also people who work at um, various scientific institutes, um, which are kind of a similar idea, but they are kind of fully supported by, by grant money that they have to write proposals for. And, you know, again, they're, they're spending most of their time um, doing science, but not necessarily um, NASA mission related. So it could right. be um, theoretical, it could be analysis from previous missions, um, it could be working on other things. And then um, the, you know, the rest of us are, um, at colleges and universities, um, and, uh, you know, maybe doing research related to, to current missions or maybe doing other, um, work, but we're also, um, teaching, uh, as part of their time, as part of our time. So, um, in my, in my case at Johns Hopkins during the school year, I'm supposed to be spending, um, about 30 to 40 percent of my time teaching mm -hmm. um, rather than doing um, science. And so it's just a different way of doing um, the job um, because I was interested in, in teaching. And, um, you know, in that sense, we're teaching both undergrads. So I sometimes teach a kind of like planets 100 level class for, mm. for non-science majors who are just interested in knowing more about the solar system. Um, but I also teach graduate students, um, and have, you know, my own graduate students who are, you know, actively working on research for their PhDs. And so, um, it's just a different, uh, you know, type of job. And, you know, the fact of the matter is we're all, um, working together. So some of my closest collaborators are still, um, at NASA centers, uh, you know, at the Jet Propulsion Laboratory, or um, since I'm out here in Maryland now at NASA Goddard, which is pretty close by. Um, and so we all kind of work together on various things, just depending on um, what missions are happening and, mm -hmm. and what else is going on in the world. <laughs> Could you divide it? Is, is it possible to divide it in saying that, like, NASA is more we have to figure out how to make things work right now, whereas, like, you're in a more academic environment, so you have the ability to do that kind of almost like esoteric research that doesn't necessarily have, uh, you know, a straight application. I'm thinking about, um, I had another guest on, uh, Richard Feynman, who he's a, he just finished his PhD at, at MIT, and he was at NASA working on, like, increasing the mobility and usability of spacesuits which is a very functional problem. Like, how do we make these more usable yeah. when people are inside of them? Um, so I didn't know if it was as easy as saying, well, if you are at NASA and you're working predominantly on, like, missions, then it's going to be things that are put into use right now versus almost just data collecting, I'll call it. It's obviously yeah. more complicated than that, but t towards, like, what you're doing. Yeah, it it really depends on the person. So um, a lot of the scientists who work at NASA centers um, have the same ability to put in um, research grant proposals that I do. Mm -hmm. um, and in fact, you know, we all apply to the same the same pots of money. And so okay. uh, they can, you know, get um, funding for part of their salary or 
I guess in some cases all, although I think that rarely happens, to, um, you know, work on whatever um, science questions they want to work on. So, you know, it really just depends on the person's position and, you know, their career stage and their interests and stuff like that, um, you know, what kind of work they're um, doing there. Mm -hmm. uh, but certainly um, a lot of, of the scientists who are employed at, at NASA centers um, are spending at least you know, a fraction of their time, um, either working on missions that are currently in development, um, or missions that are currently flying. Okay. Okay. Um, before we run out of time, I want to ask you about, I'm going to go off the deep end here. I want to ask you about your Etsy store and, <laughs> and what you're doing over here with your artistic side. Oh gosh. Um, <laughs> yeah. Where to start? Um, so about a year and a half ago, right? It's about two years ago. Do you care? Uh, I should ask, do you care if I like pull some images and then have superimpose them on the video so that's, people can see? That's fine. Okay. I'm a little nervous about which ones you're going to pull, but I can't <laughs> Okay. Um, that's fine. Um, so about two years ago, um, I... I got an email asking if I was interested in participating in this program um, here in Baltimore. So um, there's a bunch of other universities in Baltimore besides Johns Hopkins. Um, right. And one of those universities is called MICA, which is the Maryland Institute College of Arts. Okay. And MICA has a joint program um, with a research institute at Hopkins called HEMI, which is the Hopkins Extreme Materials Institute. So it's a HEMI-MICA um, partnership. Um, in what they're calling the extreme arts, <laughs> which probably sounds a little weird. Um, I'm, I'm imagining like we're like since you do triathlon, we're like on the bike trying to paint at the same time, or like surfing, <laughs> well, like seeing planets or something. Right. <laughs> um, I, I swear I will eventually answer your story, the, your question. This is really the answer to this thing okay. about my story. It's okay. Um, so I had gotten asked if I was interested in participating. And so what happens is the um, art students from MICA, and some of them are um, undergraduate students and some of them are master students, um, you know, if they're interested, apply to this program, which pairs them with a professor um, at Hopkins who's part of HEMI. And then you just kind of do stuff. <laughs> okay. So the program is, I guess it's, at this point it's not um, it's not that new, but basically the, the art students write a proposal and, um, you know, kind of talk about what they're interested in and what kinds of things they might want to collaborate on. And so you end up with this huge range of things because some of the MICA students are really interested in, like, trying to better understand material science because they're trying to figure out, and like, this is no exaggeration. Um, there was an intern who got the, um, like orange peels and like lemon peels and stuff like that for, that were left over from the juicer at Whole Foods. Okay. And we're trying to figure out how to make them into like material that you could then like, you know, make into like, tables and sculptures and stuff like that um and so they were working with somebody in material science to figure out like 
how to because they had been messing around with this in their like studio and they mm-hmm. were trying to figure out how to like really make it into a scientific process so that the material was reproducible so that mm-hmm. it did exactly what they wanted whatever so that's like one type of example of what they did so <laughs> i swear i'm getting there so the woman who had applied to work who had mentioned that she was interested in working with me um had whose name is amy wetch she's amazing um, she had up until that point been really interested in the microscopic. And so a lot of her art had to do with the human body, um, with the interaction, um, of humans with the medical system. So particularly people who have chronic illnesses, those kinds of things. Um, and so she had, as she tells the story and she tells it much better than I do, she had been looking at the Hemi website and, and there were some people who do that type of stuff in biophysics and stuff like that. And so she's like, Oh great. This would be really cool. I can go like learn about their research and whatever. And then she saw um, the description of what I do. Um, and as far as I can tell, she hadn't ever like really been a space nerd before, which is hilarious now because she's such a space dork. Um, <laughs> but she, you know, also was like, Oh, well, you know, Dr. Hurst research looks interesting or whatever. Um, and, for various reasons, I was kind of primed to be interested in in working with an artist when I got this email, and her work is spectacular. And so I and I, I tease her about this to this day because I didn't actually read her application. I never read her application. Mm-hmm. I scrolled down to the portfolio pieces that she had included pictures of at the bottom, and this one piece in particular, I feel like just like went like straight like to like the depths of my soul like almost like I could physically feel it and I was just like I don't know who this woman is I don't even really understand what's happening with this program but like I need the person who made this piece of art in my life mm-hmm. and so I responded and asked um you know and said you know I would be interested in you know meeting with you if you you know want to come chat more about my work or whatever and she came by and we just like clicked instantly And so she ended up getting the fellowship and she spent um, the whole summer just kind of like going back and forth between her studio and hanging out with my research group. So she would come to like group meetings. She spent a lot of time in the lab asking a lot of questions, um, doing a lot of background reading. Um, But in the middle of all of this, I swear I'm going to get to the Etsy store. We're getting there. We're getting there. (laughs) In the middle of all of this, I had also um, started working with a couple of the other faculty members in my department to participate in a program here in Baltimore City called Thread, um, which is a program that tries to provide support um, in lots of different meanings of that word for um, the students who are the most underperforming at, you know, kind of the the hardest, um, I don't even know what the word is that I want to use, but the, you know, the kind of hardest hit schools in Baltimore City. So these are the students um, that are really underperforming in Baltimore city. And, and the idea of the program is that, you know, there's nothing wrong with these kids. Um, it's not because they're lazy. It's not because they, you know, don't have what it takes to do well in school. It's just that, you know, they don't have the resources, Mm -hmm. um, whatever that means, um, to be successful. And so the idea of the program is to help pair them with people who, who will help them find the things that they need. And they get summer employment through, um, this program. And so we uh, had worked to bring five of them into our department that same summer that Amy was working with me. And so we had these five high school students um, who didn't know each other uh, and didn't know any of us Mm -hmm. um, come to work in our department for the summer. And I had this like panic moment where I'm just like, this is going to be a catastrophe. Like they don't know each other. They don't know us. Like, what are we going to do? 
And so I just texted Amy one day. And at this point, her and I had not known each other that long. And I was like, do you have any activities that would be good for like high school age kids um, that would just be like an icebreaker, you know, something that they could do for like an hour and, you know, chat with each other and, you know, get to know the, the, the people who are trying to, to facilitate. And I think she said no when I first asked. Um, okay. And then I think a little bit later she texted me and she, she said, well, actually, you know, I do this thing where you can make these coasters um, using alcohol inks. Like the materials are pretty cheap. Like anybody can do it. Um, that might be fun. And like at that point, I feel like I was so desperate for anything that sounded like it might be fun that I was just like, sold, let's do it. Yeah. <laughs> and so um, the like first or second day that we had the kids there, Amy sat down and like taught them how to do this. Um, and it's super fun. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> I was just like, oh, this is really cool, like whatever. And so I kind of bought my own and started experimenting with them. And I would text Amy, like, the pictures of the first couple ones I made, and she was like, Sarah, these are really good. And I'm like, you're just telling me that because you like me. And she's like, no, they're really good. And then I posted a couple of them on Twitter, and everybody was like, oh, my gosh, are you going to sell these? And I was like, no. And then everybody was like, are you going to sell these? And I was like, no. And then, like, between Amy pressuring me and Twitter pressuring me, I finally decided to, like open an Etsy store mm-hmm. um, and ended up selling a lot of them, which was cool. I find making it really relaxing. And so that was kind of nice because it was like this relaxing endeavor for me, like this creative outlet, but then mm-hmm. also like I could sell them to people. <laughs> yeah. So that was how that happened. I realize it's a really long story, but like, well, I asked the question. It's, it, it's really open-ended. It's like, it could be anything from, from the story you told to, oh, they looked pretty and I did art in high school. Like they, you, there, yeah. there's no idea what the story's going to be. So well, and I, I like the story because, um, and, and Amy and I like to tell it because when we talk about the program and when people ask about the internship program, they often will ask Amy what she got out of spending time with us and with me and with our collaboration. And I think a lot of people really get the feeling that that program was set up as kind of like a one way, Mm -hmm. I don't know, knowledge transfer or experience or whatever. And, um, first of all, I just don't think that's true in general, um, of the experience that people are having in doing this. I think there's a lot of amazing synergies between artists and scientists and engineers, but, um, I like our example because we have a very concrete story that we can tell, like, no, it actually went both ways because now Amy, like, taught me how to do this stuff, and, like, now I make art also, and, um, anyway, so. (laughs) No, it's a, it's a great story. I just think about, like, this isn't to like to my own horn, but I have a lot of very like I did art in high school and I play violin. I play in a local symphony and like I, I have my undergrad is in theoretical math. And I, I there's a lot of links between all of these things that when you only spend time in one field, you don't see them. So I totally understand people saying like oh, knowledge is only going one direction or like only one person is going to get something out of this. But yeah. there's so many, there's so many other like qu- like my last guest and I were talking about this too like quantitative and qualitative things that you get out of it where you can't always measure specifically this is what I got out of it but there's a lot of qualitative things you can get out of 
a new relationship or experiences right. that help shape you and change what you're doing. And, and it's hard to explain that to people. So I totally get why you're like, we have a concrete example for those people that don't like or want qualitative data. We have, <laughs> we have a specific example of what happened in this kind of collaboration. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. So um, we've run a little bit over time, so I'll try to be sensitive time for you. Um, where can people find you if they want to kind of keep up with your work, see your Etsy shop, maybe um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> see what's going on with you. I exist mostly on Twitter. Okay. Um, so I'm planet doctor, but it's just planet DR. Okay. So doctor's not spelled out all the way. Um, there you can find, I think a link to both my professional website and my Etsy store. Um, that's the only like public facing social media I have. So people are always like, what's your Instagram? And I'm like, I think I'm too old for Instagram. I don't know. <laughs> like there's all these new things. Like t- I don't even TikTok. Like I don't even know what these other things are. So if you try to find me anywhere else, you will fail. Um, but I'm Fair. on, I'm on Twitter um, very actively. And that I think has links to all of the other places where one could go about finding me. Okay. And if I remember, I will put, if you're at least, if you're on YouTube, I will try to put a link to Sarah's research gate in case you want to look at that as well. I try to, I try to publish those when they are possible to be linked. (laughs) Yeah, that's great. Well, thanks for coming on and talking to me today, Sarah. Awesome. Thanks for having me.